Well, the book of Exodus is truly epic and memorable. I think you would agree, right? When you think of the book of Exodus, I mean, you think of such memorable scenes, like we're going to see today, the burning bush. You think about the ten plagues, the Passover meal, the Red Sea crossing, the, the giving of the Ten Commandments, the tragic golden calf incident. Not only is Exodus memorable, but it's also very foundational. It's foundational for the rest of the Old Testament where it's alluded to again and again and again. But it doesn't stop just there. It, it keeps going forward. It's foundational for the New Testament as well. For example, you know, every so often, uh, we gather and we celebrate the Lord's Supper or communion in churches around the world. We come together and we celebrate the Lord's Supper as Jesus instructed us to do because it reminds us of what He did on the cross, right? Where He accomplished salvation. But did you know that when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, what was He actually doing that night? He was celebrating the Passover meal, wasn't he, with his disciples. So Jesus takes the Passover meal, he transforms it so that it focuses on himself, right? That's pretty key, right? So in other words, if we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper, we need to realize that it's actually built off of the Passover meal. And to understand the Lord's Supper fully, we need to understand what was taking place in Exodus. So Exodus is absolutely foundational to understanding not just the Old Testament, but understanding all of the Bible. And even to go a little bit further, Exodus has played an enormous role in the history of Western civilization. Uh, Joel Baden wrote a book about Exodus's impact through the centuries. He says, quote, the book of Exodus is the second book of the Hebrew Bible, but it may rank first in lasting cultural importance. You say, well, how has Exodus been important? How about, let's look at our own nation, the shaping of our country. Let me give a couple different ways. During the Revolutionary War, the Exodus story was often used to speak about England's oppression of the colonies and the thirst for freedom. One writer says, a couple of months after American colonists declared their independence from Great Britain, a committee com composed of Benjamin Franklin, Thomas Jefferson, and John Adams. That's quite a committee, right? <laughs> I would say. Proposed a design for a national seal. All right? It portrayed the Egyptian pharaoh leading his troops through a divided Red Sea in pursuit of the fleeing Israelites. Surrounding this scene were the words, rebellion to tyrants is obedience to God. Now, that, that national seal didn't actually pass. The Continental Congress didn't go with it. But do you see how significant Exodus was? Fast forward a little bit to the civil rights movement. Martin Luther King often referred to Exodus in his powerful and moving speeches. After the Supreme Court desegregated schools in 1954, he compared that landmark ruling to a parting of the Red Sea. One writer says, in King's hands, the Exodus proved to be the preeminent inventional resource for addressing the needs of the movement at every stage of its history. So Exodus has played a huge role in our country. And on a lighter note, 
Exodus has entered our cultural media and mainstream for many, many, many years, right? One of the most popular movies in the 1950s was a movie called what? The Ten Commandments with Charlton Heston. In fact, I was doing a little research, and if you adjust for inflation, which we all like to talk about nowadays, but if you adjust for inflation, The Ten Commandments is actually the eighth biggest movie ever made in terms of box office receipts. It was truly a blockbuster. So Exodus has captured our imagination. It's left a massive imprint, and for good reason, very good reason. So today, we're going to start a series on the book of Exodus, so you guys are in the right place at the right time as we kick it off here today. We're going to try to understand these epic stories, their truthfulness, and yes, I do believe that these stories took place, and why they are relevant for us here today. So my game plan is going to look at about a half a dozen or so of these major epic events, and then spend about that many uh, messages talking about the Ten Commandments, which are so obviously foundational for our lives. So let me invite you to turn to Exodus right now, second book of the Bible after Genesis. We're going to just scan through quickly the first two chapters of Exodus, and then we're going to dive hard into Exodus chapter 3. As you turn there, Exodus has been traditionally attributed to the pen of Moses, who wrote the first five books of the Old Testament. You're going to see right away how Exodus is part of a unified set. All of these books are fitting together. You're going to see how Exodus fits with Genesis. But overall, just so we're kind of walking right in, everybody on the same page, the big picture of Exodus is that Israel becomes enslaved in Egypt, God is going to deliver them with a mighty deliverance, and then God is going to establish his covenant with the nation of Israel. All right? So that's where we're going to be heading in the weeks ahead. Everybody in Exodus right now? All right. So let's give a quick just kind of scan through the time before Moses. The time before Moses. Exodus begins, as I said, with a very clear connection to the book that came before it, Genesis. Exodus, if you look down on on your opening chapter there, it lists the sons of Jacob or Israel who were obviously very important at the very end of Genesis, right? And it lists how they came from Canaan to Egypt because of a great famine, right? Centuries before, God used one of the sons of Jacob named Joseph to deliver not only Canaan, but the whole land of Egypt. And Joseph was instrumental in making sure that Israel prospered and they were secure. And over time, we really read that. Look at verse 7 with me. It reads, The people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Do those words ring a bell for anybody? They echo Genesis 1.28, where God created Adam and Eve, and he desired that we would serve him and that we would multiply and spread across the world because God wants a world of worshipers. Amen? That was God's original mandate for humankind. Now, we know that it did not go according to plan, did it? Hence, the Noah's flood. 
wiping out humanity. After Noah's flood, God makes a covenant with who? Abraham, right? And God tells Abraham, I want you and your descendants to follow me once again so that you will multiply and be blessed and be followers of me. And so we see that here in the book of Exodus where Abraham's descendants are seeking the Lord. They're growing and multiplying. So some people call this kind of the second Genesis as that original mandate is being lived out, at least in part. Now, we need to remember that tucked away in Genesis was a stunning prediction that God told Abraham. It says in Genesis 15, 13, and 14, God said these things to to Abraham. Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. Everybody tracking with me so far? God told Abraham, look, your your descendants are going to go and be in this land for 400 years. I'm going to bring judgment on them, okay? And so now... Abraham's descendants spending 400 years or so, that's what was predicted. Now that predicted opposition steps up to the plate. Let's read verses 8 to 15 here in Exodus. Here comes Pharaoh. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come. Let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. And all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. So Pharaoh oppresses Israel by making them slaves to build these stories for him. But Israel keeps prospering, but Pharaoh is not going to be stopped. And so he takes it to a new level of oppression. He he orders the murder of all of the newborn Hebrew males. We read that two Hebrew midwives did not want to follow those orders, and they disobeyed the Pharaoh. Now we're going into Exodus 2. I preached a whole chapter in like two minutes. That's pretty impressive, right? I don't do that very often. (laughs) Moving on. (laughs) This leads to Exodus 2, right, where we read about the birth of a particular Hebrew male to a Levite family. His parents refused Pharaoh's orders, but after three months, three months, they realized they couldn't hide him anymore, so they put him in a basket, and they send him down the Nile River. And while he's floating down the river, his sister watches, I believe this was a carefully crafted plan, 
And Pharaoh's daughter notices the baby boy, says, oh, he's so cute and beautiful and everything. And she takes him into her household. And she even says, hey, to the sister, you know what? I will pay you if you take the boy back to his mother and let the boy be nursed until he's ready. Isn't that pretty cool? She was paying him to nurse, right? To be nursed by his own mother. Well, eventually, though, the, uh, the, the child grows up and he is brought into Pharaoh's household. And Pharaoh's daughter names him what? Moses. Moses. That is this boy's name. And Moses grows up in Pharaoh's household. You know, Pharaoh was the dominant power of the world. And so Moses would have received an incredible, an incredible education living in Pharaoh's household. And some wonder if he even learned how to walk like an Egyptian. For those who are younger, you're like, what are you talking about? That is such a weird joke. But for those my age, you kind of get it, right? All right. We move on. So after Moses grew up, probably around the age of 40, he sees a Hebrew being beaten like an, by an Egyptian and hid him in the sand. He kills the Egyptian, puts him in the sand. Next day, Moses goes out. Two Hebrews are quarreling. They're quarreling. Moses tries to break them up, and one of them says to Moses, uh, if, if whether he was going to kill him too. So at that point, Moses knows that the word was out and that his life would be in jeopardy. And so Moses flees out of Egypt and he goes to Midian to escape. There he meets uh, a woman, he marries a woman named Zipporah and they have a son. And he's a shepherd out in Midian. Let's read the final few verses in chapter 2, and then we'll launch into chapter 3. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. So God is going to remember his people, his covenant that he made with Abraham, and he is going to answer their prayers. How's he going to do it? By raising up a deliverer named Moses. And that leads to our passage today here in chapter 3, the call of Moses. And the first part is the Lord appears to Moses. The Lord appears to Moses. Let's read together verses 1 to 6. Chapter 3, now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of Gad. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the, when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, 
For the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. So Moses is a shepherd. He comes to Mount Horeb, which is also called Mount Sinai in the Bible. And while he's there, the angel of the Lord appeared to Moses. He appears in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. But amazingly, this bush, though it's on fire, is not consumed. It just stays there. That's why we call it the burning bush, right? And so Moses beholds this remarkable scene. And then God calls Moses by name. Moses says, here I am. And then interestingly, God tells Moses not to come near and to take off his sandals. Why did God tell Moses to take off his sandals? Well, the ground that he was standing on was holy. It was devoted to God. That's what holy means, devoted to God. The mountain was not inherently holy by itself, but it becomes holy because God now devoted that mountain to himself. Now, to clarify, sometimes we have in our minds when we have thought about this passage that the ground just around the burning bush was holy, right? And so Moses had to take off his sandals if he was going to go approach it. But notice it doesn't say that, right? No, right where he is standing, he's to take off his sandals. Why? Because the entire mountain was devoted to God. Right where Moses was standing was holy ground because that entire mountain was now devoted to God. And so Moses' taking off of his sandals was an ancient custom to show that you were relinquishing your rights. You see this in Deuteronomy 25.9 and Ruth 4.7. So basically, God's telling Moses, this property isn't yours anymore. You might come here, some, you might have used to come here grazing your sheep and so forth, but no more. This property is mine. This is devoted to me. And we're going to see this a little bit later in verse 12 where God's going to tell them, look, when you deliver the people out of Egypt, I want you to come right back to this mountain that has been devoted to me. And not only that, in chapter 20, we see where this comes to pass, right? On that mountain is where God meets with Moses and gives the Ten Commandments. So God was devoting this mountain to himself. And he was also devoting Moses to himself because Moses was going to be his chosen instrument. Just really quickly in verse 6, notice when God tells Moses that he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's important because that's showing that all of those promises long ago had not been forgotten, right? Great continuity in Scripture. God had not forgotten. These promises were going to come to pass. For his part, Moses is hiding out of fear because of this amazing sight of the Lord. So the Lord appears to Moses. Now the second part is the Lord promises deliverance. Let's read verses 7 to 12. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them out of that land to a good and broad land a land flowing with milk and honey in the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. 
And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me. And I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you when you have brought the people out of Egypt. You shall serve God on this mountain. So the Lord tells Moses, Look, I know about these afflictions that are afflicting your people in Egypt, but I'm going to bring them out and bring them to the land of Canaan just like I promised. That is the promised land, right? We hear that phrase, the promised land. God had promised that land to them long ago, but the question is, God, how are you going to deliver them? And that's where Moses hears perhaps the uh, jarring news that he was going to be the one to deliver them. He would be the one. So not only is he going to have to go and deliver them, but Moses has to go and talk to who? Pharaoh, the very man who is oppressing your people, the very man who is probably the most powerful man on the planet. Moses was not too excited (laughs) about this task. Would you be excited about that task? I don't think in reality anybody would be excited about that task. Because that task is a God-sized task, isn't it? No person's going to be able to do that. But God assures Moses that he will be with him. In the midst of that task, he will be with him. And God assures Moses that one day Israel's going to return to that mountain just like God promised. Now, obviously, Moses' task is unique, right? This is a monumental task that Moses was given. But this principle is universal. If God calls us to do something, He will be with you. And we are to simply obey and not make excuses. If God calls us to do something, He will be with you. And we should obey and not make excuses. And you know what? Moses could have dug in his pocket and he could have had some really good excuses. Some really good excuses. And I wonder if he thought of these things. To start off here, you know, Moses uh, could have easily thought, my time as a deliverer, that was long ago, right? I'm 80 years old now. For me to be a deliverer, wouldn't it have made a lot more sense, God, to do this when I was 40 instead of 80 years old? Now, I know that there can be some really vigorous 80-year-old people out there. I know that. Someone's raising hands back there. I see you. But I think we all would recognize that if you're going to pick someone in the prime of their life, 40 is a better time than 80. But Moses, that didn't happen for him, did it? Now he's being asked when he is 80 years old 
Moses probably was also thinking, look, God, I tried this long ago, right? I, try, I just tried to break up two Hebrews that were quarreling. I was trying to break up a fight, and they didn't even want to listen to me. You're telling me that I'm going to lead out a nation? Huh? What are you saying, God? I think those are pretty good excuses, don't you? Beat some of the things we have. And remember also, at this point, Moses' glory days of being in Pharaoh's house with that education and that training, that was long ago, wasn't it? He's a nobody. He's been hanging out with sheep for 40 years in Midian. But God called Moses to serve him, and he would be with him. And that is all that matters, amen? That is all that matters, amen? amen? So let me ask you a question. Is God calling you to do something? Perhaps you want, He wants you to obey His Word. Just very clear what the Word of God has said. But you got some excuses in your pocket. Maybe it's baptism. Obey. God will be with you. Maybe you need to reconcile with someone in your life. Obey. God will be with you. Maybe you need to confess sin to somebody. Obey. God will be with you. Maybe you've been unfaithful to your spouse pornography or an inappropriate relationship. Obey. God will be with you. Maybe you've taken some money or possessions that weren't really yours. Obey. God will be with you. Maybe you need to start really having quiet times in your life where you study the Bible and pray. But your excuses, I'm too busy, things going on. Obey. God will be with you. Maybe there's someone in your life that you need to share the gospel with. Obey. And God will be with you. Obey God's word. And you know what? Sometimes those hard times when you do have to confess something or when you do, you're, you know, it's a hard thing, that's when God's presence is the sweetest and most intimate in your life because He knows that it's hard, right? He will be with you. Is there something that His Word tells you and you know it, but you're just not obeying it in your life? Hear and follow that universal principle. Obey, God will be with you. And maybe it's not something clearly spelled out in Scripture, but God has just been tugging your heart. Come on, I want you to do this. I want you to do this. I have a task for you. No, you're not parting a Red Sea, but I want you to do something, and it's just as significant in the eyes of God because whatever He tells us to do is significant. Maybe it's joining a ministry. Maybe it's starting a ministry. Maybe it's going on a mission trip. And maybe you just haven't been stretched in a long time. And you know what? 
That's a real problem, isn't it? For all of us. God wants to stretch us. Ease and comfort is not the goal of the Christian life. Amen? Obedience is the goal of the Christian life. So when God is putting something on your heart, and I hope that He is putting on uh, everybody's heart something today, if there is not something there, that He is stretching us and engaging us because we have work to do as a church and as a great commission body, we will stop making excuses and we will obey and trust that God will be with us. Trust God. He will be with you. Amen? Third part here. The Lord reveals His name to Moses. Let's read verses 13 to 15, these very memorable words. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. So, in case the people of Israel ask Moses the name of God, Moses wants to know what to say. Apparently, they made this covenant with Abraham long ago, but the, but the, the, the spiritual condition of Israel had apparently kind of deteriorated, at least as of late, and they were not aware or had forgotten or something the personal name of God. Now, we know names are important in the Bible, right? They reflect, they reflect your character, your essence. And so now we're talking about the name of God, right? <laughs> the greatest being in the universe. So his name is going to matter, right? So what do we make about the name of God? Well, the name of God in Hebrew is the word Yahweh. I'm going to throw it up on the screen there. That's what it would have looked like. The word Yahweh. In English, we translate it as Lord. Usually, if you look down in your Bible there, you'll see all capital letters. That is being used to translate the word Yahweh. So the name of the Lord, the personal name of God, is Yahweh in the Hebrew there, or we translate it as English. And it's by far the most common name of God used in the Bible, 6,828 times. That's a lot of times, right? That is the personal name of God, as it said in verse 15. That is his name forever, the Lord. You say, what about I am who I am? What do we make of that? Put on your thinking cap for a second, okay? You got to track with me here. Everybody put them on? All right. So both the name Yahweh and I am are derived from the same Hebrew word Hebrew verb to be, right? So we say, I am, you are, he is, she is. Those are to be verbs, right? And so in Hebrew is Hayah. So both the name Yahweh and I am come from that verb to be. Everybody got that? That was, I got to go on, but I wasn't sure about that one. <laughs> 
So when God says, I am, that is God making a general statement about himself. But for Moses to speak about God to these Israelites in the third person, right? He should refer to God as Yahweh, which simply means he is. He is. And that's the name that you see throughout the Old Testament. Yahweh. He is. That is his name. That's his personal name. So, well, what is the name of Yahweh or Lord? What is that telling us about God? Is there some things that we can gather from that? I do. I think there's some really powerful things. Let me just mention two. First, the self-existence of God. Again, he is. God just simply is. Isn't that powerful? Theologian Wayne Grudem says, God's existence and character are determined by himself alone and are not dependent on anyone or anything else. God was not created, and he does not need any part of creation to exist. He doesn't need us or any part of creation to find fulfillment. He is not lacking in one fragment of his being. He is entirely God. He simply is. God needs nothing from us. In Job 41.11, God says, Who has first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. So that's why that question sometimes that people will ask is, who created God? It doesn't make any sense. That question is nonsensical because God is a, he is a necessary being. He has to exist. He has to exist forever. He is independent. He is self-existent. He doesn't need anything. Everything else, though, does need God to exist. He is. Boy, that's something for us to consider in our own lives, right? He, He is the center of the universe, not us. And the biggest problem with so much of our lives is that we put ourselves in the center rather than having God. When you put God in the center of your universe, now you're at a place to start living life the way God created you to live. But if you put other things in there, it is a mess. No matter what you do, if you don't have God in the center of your life, it will spin out of control because he is. But I think it also shows that God is infinite. He's not limited like the pagan gods. I was doing some research this past week about the Egyptian gods, and it's just like, there's all of these different gods. you got the god of grain, the god of war, the god of the moon, and all these different gods. They're all these little tiny measly gods. The true God isn't like that, amen? He's just infinite. He's just infinite. You can't limit him. You just say, he, he is fill in the blank. He's almighty. He's all-loving. He's all-powerful. He's all-knowing. He is. And so when God reveals his name, he is showing that he's infinite, but he's also blowing us out of our seat to say, I'm revealing who I am, but you really can't even scratch the surface of who I am. And I think that's what we need in our lives is a big view of God. Not a 
huge long list where God went, I want you to work here and fix this. And all we focus on these little minute details and just saying, you know what? You're God. You're in control of this world. And you're in control of my life even when I don't have it all figured out. Now, in the rest of chapter 3, God tells Moses exactly what's going to happen in the days ahead. He tells them that the people of Israel will listen to Moses. They're going to listen to you, Moses. But Pharaoh's going to resist Moses. And eventually, though, he will release you because I'm going to send a bunch of plagues that are going to cause him to release. So Moses faces this daunting task. But you know what? God's going to be with them, and he is going to succeed because of God's presence. And in fact, it says at the very end there, when Israel leaves Egypt, they're not going to leave empty-handed. The Egyptians are going to ask them, hey, is there anything we can give to you on the way out? They were probably glad to see him go, <laughs> but they just wanted to cater to them. God says, you're going to plunder them. Moses is like, how can this be? We're enslaved now, but yet we're going to be ushered out with great possessions. Is that a problem for the God who is? Not at all. Not at all. Was I said at the beginning of the message, Exodus is foundational to the rest of the Old Testament and to the New Testament. And let me close just by going to the New Testament briefly here. Particularly Jesus. Particularly Jesus. You know, in Jesus' ministry, he says a lot of amazing things, doesn't he? A lot of great claims about himself. Maybe the greatest claim, though, that he makes about himself is that Jesus says, I am. I am. John chapter 8, Jesus is having a big blowout debate with some of the crowd. Toward the end of the debate, they discuss Abraham. And Jesus says, he knew Abraham. The crowd says, what? You didn't know Abraham. He's like 2,000 years ago. There's no way you could know Abraham. Who are you? Who do you claim to be that you could know Abraham? And Jesus looks at them and says, truly, truly, before Abraham was dot, 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 I am. I am. See why that's profound? Make no mistake, Jesus was claiming to be God in human flesh. The crowds pick this up because as soon as Jesus says this, what do they do? Some of them pick up stones to throw at him because they thought he was committing blasphemy. And either he was committing blasphemy or he was telling the truth as God in human flesh. And that's what's so amazing. And that's what should grip our hearts, is that Yahweh, He is self-existent, infinite, became a man, became limited in His humanity, put on flesh and bones to die for you and I, so that we could be made right with that infinite, self-existent eternal God who is also infinitely loving. And that's why He came to you and I. Making a way of salvation so that the justice of God could be satisfied and the love of God could be satisfied as they meet together 
on the cross. Jesus makes the way of salvation. Let me encourage you today. When Jesus said those words, some in the crowd rejected. Some of them were probably indifferent. But you know, indifference ultimately leads to rejection. But I wonder if some of them believed and placed their faith in Christ. If you've never done that, let me encourage you to do that this morning. Trusting Jesus Christ, who is I am, but who also went to the cross so that you might be forgiven of your sin and have the opportunity to receive eternal life. Amen? Amen. Amen. I'm going to invite you to stand. We're going to pray together. And if you feel so led, raise your hands and worship in honor of this wonderful, great God that we serve this morning. Let's pray to Him today. Yahweh, Lord, we thank You, we honor You, we praise You this morning for who You are, the name as well that You revealed to Moses 3,500 years ago. The fact that You are self-existent, infinite, almighty, all-knowing, all-loving, all of those things encapsulated in those simple words, He is Yahweh, Lord. God, we thank You so much, and we worship You now here in this moment. We give You all of the praise and all of the glory that you are so worthy. We thank you for your marvelous promises that you are with us. And Lord, I pray for all of us here this morning that we would obey your word, trusting, not making excuses, but trusting that you will be with us. And Lord, if you give us specific tasks in our life, things that you want us to do. Maybe it's just something as simple as talking to a coworker, or maybe it's confessing a sin, or maybe just whatever you're laying on our hearts, we would walk in obedience to you today because we trust you. And Lord, we ask that you would be with us. Pour out your presence in our lives. Lord Jesus, I pray for Evie Ekman. She's going to walk forward next Sunday, get into the baptism pool, and declare her faith in you. Pray that you would be with her this upcoming week. And may her testimony of faith ring out in our hearts and minds. And Lord, for anyone who's not trusted Christ, Lord, that today would be that day when they embrace you, follow you. To, to have true faith means to follow. And Lord, I pray they would follow you today. We love you and we praise you. It's in Jesus' name we ask all these things. And God's people said, Amen. Amen.